Kwan, Chapter Twelve of Strangers and Pilgrims by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Strangers and Pilgrims, Chapter Twelve. A man can have but one life and one death, one heaven, one hell. Let me fulfil my fate. Grant me my heaven now. Let me know you mine, prove you mine, write my name upon your brow, hold you and have you, and then die away, if God please, with completion in my soul. Mr. Ford's letters brought a more definite response than he had looked for. One of the chief members of the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel wrote, strongly urging him to lend himself to that vast work. It was just such men as he who were wanted, and the need for such was great. A new mission to a land of more than Cimmerian darkness was on foot. The harvest was ready, had long been waiting for the sickle, but fitting labourers were few. The letter was long and eloquent, and went home to Malcolm Ford's heart. From the first, from that first hour in which the slumbering depths of his spirit had been stirred with the sudden rush of religious enthusiasm, like that strange ruffling of Siloam's still waters beneath the breath of God's angel, from that initial hour in which, beside the clay-cold corpse of her who should have been his wife, he dedicated his life to the service of his God. He had meant to do something, to make a name which should mark him out from the unnoted ranks of the church, to accomplish a work which should be in itself the noblest monument that he could raise to the memory of his lost bride. Not in a quiet country parish could he find the fullness of his desires. It was something to have made a ripple upon this stagnant pool, something to have stirred the foul scum of indifference that had defiled these tideless waters. But having done this successfully, having awakened new life and vigour in this slumberous flock, he began to think in all earnestness that it was time for him to be moving forward. The life here was in no manner unpleasing to him, it was sweet, rather, sweet in its utter peacefulness and the fruition of all his present desires. He knew himself beloved and honoured, knew himself to have acquired unwittingly the first place and not the second in the hearts and minds of this congregation. But all this was not enough to the man who had made St. Paul his typical churchman, to the man who had boasted of himself as a soldier and servant of Christ. Very sweet was this pleasant resting place, very dear the affection that greeted him on every side. The blushing cheeks and reverent eyes of school-children lifted to him as he went along the quiet street, the warm praises of men and women, the genial welcome that greeted him in every household, the hush expectancy and upward look of rapt attention that marked his entrance to the pulpit. But precious though these things might be to him, they were not the accomplishment of his mission. It was as a pilgrim he had entered the church, a teacher whose influence for good could not be used in too wide a field. Not in this smooth garden ground could he find room for his labour. His soul yearned for the pathless forest, to stand with the pioneer's axe on his shoulder, alone in the primeval wilderness, with a new world to conquer, a new race of men to gather into the fold of Christ. This having been in his thoughts from the very first, a desire that had mingled with his dreams, sleeping and waking from the beginning, it would have been curiously inconsistent had he shrunk from its realisation now. 
and yet he sat for a long time with that letter in his hand deliberating with a painful perplexity on the course which he should take nor did that lengthy reverie make an end of his deliberation he who had been wont to decide all things swiftly his life-path being so narrow a thread leading straight to one given point his scheme of existence hardly allowing room for irresolution was now utterly at fault tossed upon a sea of doubt perplexed beyond measure alas almost unawares that mathematically adjusted scheme of his existence had fallen out of gear the wheels were clogged that had gone so smoothly the machine no longer worked with that even swiftness which had made his life so easy he was no longer able to concentrate all his thoughts and desires upon one point but was dragged to this side and to that by contending influences in a word he had given himself to a new idol that idea of foreign service of toiling for his master in an untrodden world of being able to say this work is mine and mine only which a little while ago had been to him so exhilarating a notion had now lost its charm never to see her any more he said to himself not even to know her fate could i endure that oh i know but too well that she is not worthy of my love that she is not worthy to divide my heart with the service of my god not worthy that for her sake i should be false to the vow that i made beside alice fraser's deathbed and yet i cannot tear my heart away from her sometimes i say to myself that this is not love at all only a base earthly passion a slavish worship of her beauty sometimes i half believe that i never truly loved before that my affection for alice was only a sublimated friendship that the true passion is this and this only he thought of david and that fatal hour in which the king of israel the chosen of the lord walked alone upon the housetop and beheld the woman whose beauty was to be his ruin thought and wondered at that strange solemn story with its pathetic ending was he stronger or wiser than david when for the magic of a lovely face he was ready to give his soul into bondage for three days and three nights he abandoned himself to the demon of uncertainty for three days and three nights he wrestled with the devil and satan came to him in but too fair a guise wearing the shape of the woman he loved in the end he conquered or believed that he had conquered there was no immediate necessity for a decisive reply to that letter but he determined to accept the mission that had been offered him and he began to make his arrangements with that view having once made up his mind as to his future it was of course his duty to communicate that fact to the vicar without loss of time so upon the first evening that he found himself at liberty he walked out to the vicarage to make this announcement it was an evening in the middle of march grey and cold but calm withal for the blusterous winds had spent their fury in the morning and there was only a distant mysterious sound of fitful gusts sweeping across the moorland ever and anon like the sighing of a discontented titan there was a dim line of primrose light still lingering behind the western edge of the hills when malcolm ford passed under the bar and out into the open country that lay beyond that ancient archway he looked at the dim grey landscape with a sudden touch of sadness 
how often had his eyes looked upon those familiar things without seeing them the time might soon come when to remember this place in its quiet english beauty would be positive pain just as it had been pain to him sometimes in this place to recall the mountains and the locks of his native land if i could but have lived here all the days of my life with elizabeth for my fellow-worker and companion he thought i can conceive no existence happier than that if i could be satisfied with small things but for a man who has set all his hopes on something higher surely that would be a living death i should be stifled in the languid sweetness of such an atmosphere he thought of himself with a wife and children his heart and mind filled with care for that dear household all his desires all his hopes all his fears converging to that one centre only the remnant of his intellectual power left for the service of his god a man cannot serve two masters he said to himself sweet fancy sweet dream of wife and home i renounce you there are men enough in this world with the capacity for happiness the men who are most needed are the men who can do without it the curate stood for some moments before the vicarage gate with a thoughtful air but instead of opening it walked slowly on along the waste borderland of unkempt turf that edged the high road just at the last moment that new habit of indecision took hold of him again he had hardly made up his mind what to say he would find mr luttrell with his daughters round him most likely elizabeth's clear eyes would peruse his face while he pronounced his sentence of banishment he was not quite prepared for this interview and strolled on meditatively in the cold grey twilight wondering at his own unlikeness to himself will she be sorry he wondered just a little grieved to see me depart out of her life for ever i remember when i spoke of my missionary schemes that day i told her the story of my life there was a shocked look in her face as if the idea were dreadful to her and then she began to talk of missionaries with the air of a schoolgirl as a low sort of people she is such an unanswerable enigma at times deluding one into a belief in her soul's nobility at other times showing herself frivolous shallow empty in brain and heart and yet i think after her own light fashion she will be sorry for my going then arose before him the image of lord paulyn and the memory of that sunday luncheon at the vicarage the two faces turned toward each other the man's face ardent and enraptured the girl's glowing with a conscious pride in its loveliness two faces that were of the earth earthy a brief scene which seemed like the prelude of a drama wherein he malcolm ford could have no part he bethought himself of that mere fragment of conversation he had overheard unawares on the threshold of the vestry a gush of girlish confidence in which elizabeth had boldly spoken of the viscount as her slave he remembered that common talk in which the hawley gossips had coupled lord paulyn's name with elizabeth luttrell's and he thought with a pang that this was perhaps the future which awaited her he thought of such a prospect with more than common pain a pain in which selfish regret or jealousy had no part he had heard enough of lord paulyn's career to know that the woman who married him would prepare for herself a doubtful future in all likelihood a dark and stormy one 
if i can get a minute's talk alone with her before i leave this place i will warn her he said to himself oh heaven knows if her heart is set on this business she's little likely to accept my warning he wasted half an hour idling thus by the wayside and in all that time had been thinking wholly of elizabeth instead of pondering on what he should say to her father but about that there need be no difficulty he had never yet found himself at a loss for words and though mr luttrell would doubtless be reluctant to lose so energetic a coadjutor his affliction would hardly be overwhelming there was always a fair supply of curates in the ecclesiastical market of various qualities indeed the supply of this article was apt to be in excess of the demand it was past seven when mr ford entered the vicarage the six o'clock dinner was fairly over the lamp lighted in the long low-ceiling drawing-room the four girls grouped around the fire in their favourite attitudes elizabeth on her knees before the blaze gazing into the heart of the fire like a prophetess intent on reading auguries in the coals she started to her feet when the servant announced mr ford but did not leave the hearth to greet him though her three sisters crowded eagerly about him to give him a reproachful welcome it is such an age since you have been near us said gertrude almost piteously i cannot think what we have done to offend you oh you must know that i have had no possible reason for being offended dear miss luttrell he answered cordially but with his glance wandering uneasily towards that other figure rooted to the hearth your house is only too pleasant and i have had very little time for pleasure i see your papa elsewhere and to come here is only another name for giving myself a holiday gertrude cast up her eyes in a kind of ecstasy what a saint you are she exclaimed and what a privilege to feel your blessed influence guiding and directing one's feeble efforts i have felt myself almost miraculously assisted in my poor work since you have been with us and i look back and remember my previous coldness with a shudder i have no consciousness of my saintship said mr ford with a little good-natured laugh making very light of an elderly young ladylike worship to which he was tolerably accustomed on the contrary i have a strong sense of being very human but i am glad if i have been the source of enthusiasm in you and trust that when i am no longer here to guide or inspire quite unconsciously again you will not be in any danger of falling away but i do not fear that contingency this with a somewhat severe glance in the direction of that figure by the hearth for i believe that you are thoroughly in earnest there is no such thing as earnestness without constancy elizabeth took up the challenge and flashed defiance upon the challenger oh gertrude was born good she said i wonder papa took the trouble to christen her it's impossible that she could have been born in sin and a child of wrath like the rest of us she's never tired of church-going and district visiting she has no intermittent fever of wickedness as i have when you are no longer here dear mr ford cried gertrude deaf to her sister's sneers with her hands clasped and her somewhat faded grey eyes opened very wide and gazing at the curate with a wild surmise you surely do not mean you're thinking of leaving us i have been nearly two years at hawley he answered quietly 
longer than I intended to remain when I first came here. Two very happy years, but I have awakened lately to the conviction that Hawley is not all the world, only a very pleasant corner of it, and that if I stamp my name upon nothing larger than a country parish, I shall scarcely have realised the idea with which I entered the church. "'You've been offered a church in London, perhaps,' gasped Gertrude dolefully. Diana and Blanche had seated themselves, and watched the little scene with a sympathetic air, regretful but not despairing. They would be very sorry to lose Mr. Ford, who was tall and good-looking and gentlemanlike, and had money of his own. But perhaps the vast ocean of curates might cast up at their feet even a more attractive specimen of that order, a man better adapted for picnics and small tea-drinkings and croquet. "'You're going out as a missionary!' cried Elizabeth with conviction. They all turned to look at her, startled by the certainty of her tone. She hadn't stirred from her position by the hearth, but stood there confronting them, calm as a statue, a curious contrast to the distressed Gertrude, who was wringing her hands feebly and gazing at the curate with a half-distracted air. The single lamp stood on a distant table, but even in the doubtful light, Mr. Ford fancied that Elizabeth's face had grown suddenly pale. "'You are going out as a missionary,' she repeated, as if she had by some subtle power of sympathy shared all his thoughts from the hour in which he briefly touched upon his views in his one confidential talk with her. "'You are good at guessing,' he said. "'Yes, I am going.' "'Oh!' cried Gertrude. "'It is like your apostolic nature to contemplate such self-sacrifice. "'But, oh, dear Mr. Ford, consider your health and the natives.' "'I don't think St. Paul ever gave much consideration to his health "'or the question of possible danger from the natives,' "'answered Mr. Ford with his grave smile. "'And if you insist upon comparing me with saints and apostles,' You would at least expect me to be as regardless of any peril to myself as the numerous gentlemen who have spent the best part of their lives in this work. Those lives might not have been so precious as yours, Mr. Ford. Or they may have been much more precious. There are very few to regret me, should the chances of war be adverse. Again he stole a glance at Elizabeth. She stood firm as a rock, and was now not even looking his way. Her eyes were bent upon the decaying fire with that customary prophetic look. She might have been trying to read his fate there. However, he continued, the die is cast. I have arrived at the conviction that I am more wanted yonder to dig and delve that rugged soil than to idle among the delights of this flower garden. And I came here this evening to announce my determination to Mr. Luttrell. Do you know if I shall find him in his study? Papa has gone into town to the reading-room, said Blanche. Ah, then I can take my chance of finding him there, said the curate, preparing to depart. Oh, Mr. Ford, how unkind to be so anxious to run away, when this is perhaps almost your last visit. You must stop to tea, and you can tell us about your plans. How soon, with a little choking noise, you really mean to leave us? "'I will stop with much pleasure, if you like,' he answered, putting down his hat, 
which Gertrude took up with a reverent air as if it had been a mitre and removed to a convenient abiding-place. As to my plans, they are somewhat vague as yet. I have little to tell beyond the one fact that I am going. Only I thought it due to Mr. Luttrell to give him the earliest information of that fact, insignificant as it may be. It is not insignificant, exclaimed Gertrude. Hawley never had such a gain or such a loss as you will have been to it. Will it be, with another little choking interval, like a strangled semicolon, very long before we lose you? I do not know what you call long, or about a month, perhaps. Only a month? Only four more blessed Sundays? Oh, Mr. Ford, that is sudden. Do not suppose that I am not sorry to go, said Mr. Ford. I am very fond of Hawley, but that other work is a part of an old design. I have only been trying my strength here. Only fluttering your wings like a young eagle before soaring to the topmost mountain peaks, exclaimed Gertrude with a little gush of poetry, raising her tearful eyes to the ceiling in the midst of which burst the maid brought in the tea-tray, and Miss Luttrell seated herself to perform her duties in connection therewith, not without a consolatory pride in the silver tea-service. She was the kind of woman to whom, even in the hour of despair, these things are not utterly dust and ashes. Elizabeth had seated herself in an armchair by the fire, on which her gaze was still gravely bent. She made no farther attempt to join in the conversation, but sat silent while Gertrude persecuted the curate with questions about his future career, not consenting to be put off with vague or careless answers, but evincing an insatiable thirst for exact information upon every point. Scarcely did Elizabeth lift her eyes from that mute contemplation of the fire when Mr. Ford carried her a cup of tea. She took it from him with a murmured acknowledgment but did not look up at him or give him any excuse for lingering near her. He was obliged to go back to his chair by the round table at the other end of the room, and sit in the full glare of the lamp, submitting himself meekly to Gertrude's cross-questioning. He bore this inflection perhaps with a greater patience than he might otherwise have shown, for the sake of that quiet figure by the hearth. Against his better judgment, even although the plan of his life was fixed irrevocably, and Elizabeth Luttrell's image excluded from it, there was yet a pensive sweetness in her presence, her silent presence, the sense of being near her. What does it matter if the pleasure is a foolish one, he thought? It must needs be so brief. He stayed about an hour, sipping orange pekoe, and talking somewhat reluctantly of his hopes and views, for he was a man who deemed that in these things silence is golden. He tried to turn the thread of talk another way, but Gertrude would not be put off. "'Oh, let us talk of you and your future, dear Mr. Ford,' she exclaimed, with her accustomed air of pious rapture. "'It will be such a comfort when you are gone to be able to think of you and follow your footsteps on the map.' The clock struck the half-hour after nine, and Mr. Luttrell had not yet appeared, so the curate rose to depart, and went across to the hearthrug to bid Elizabeth good-night. "'Oh, you'd better say good-bye at the same time,' said Diana. 
your visits are so few and far between that i dare say lizzie will have gone away before we see you again gone away oh yes she's going to town in a fortnight to stay with aunt chevenix indeed this in a disappointed tone yet it could matter so little to him whither she went when he was about to disconnect himself altogether from hawley only he disapproved of aunt chevenix in the abstract and it was disagreeable to him to hear that the woman he had admired and at times even believed in was about to be subject to her influence i believe that you are half a puritan at heart mr ford said diana and that you look upon all fashionable pleasures as criminal i could read it in your face one day when auntie was holding forth upon her delectable land in the regions of eton place i have no passion for that kind of thing i admit answered the curate but i trust that your sister elizabeth will pass safely through that and every other ordeal if good wishes could ensure her safety mine are earnest enough to count for something he shook hands with elizabeth as he said this the hand she gave him was very cold and he fancied even that it trembled a little as his strong fingers closed on it then followed gertrude's effusive farewells he would come to see them oftener would he not now that his hours among them were numbered diana and blanche were also effusive but in a milder degree having already been speculating upon the possible attributes of a new curate in so dull a life as theirs even the agony of such a parting was not unpleasing distraction like that abscess in the cheek from which an austrian archduchess derived amusement in her declining years while these farewells were being somewhat lengthily drawn out elizabeth slipped quietly from the room mr ford heard the flutter of her dress and looked round for a moment to discover that her place was vacant how empty did the room seem to him without her he dragged himself away from the reluctant gertrude at last and felt not a little relieved when he found himself in the open air under a windy sky the moon shining fitfully with swift clouds scudding across her silvern face the night winds sighing among the laurels on the leafy bank that shadowed the almost empty flower border where a fringe of daffodils showed pale in the moonlight mr ford walked slowly towards the gate over the lawn on which he had condescended to foolish games of croquet in the summers that were gone thinking of elizabeth and her curious apathetic silence and the almost death-like coldness of the hand that touched his she is the strangest girl he said to himself and there are moments when i'm half tempted to think he didn't finish the thought even to himself for looking up suddenly he beheld a figure standing before him on the edge of the lawn a woman's figure with a shawl of fleecy whiteness folded arabwise and shrouding it almost from head to feet yet even thus muffled he knew the figure by its bearing a loftier air than is common to modern young ladyhood something nearer akin to the untutored grace of an indian princess elizabeth yes mr ford i've come out here to ask you if it is true if you do really intend to fling your life away like that there is no question of my flinging away my life he answered quietly yet strangely moved by her presence by the smothered passion in her tone i shall be as much in the hands of god yonder as i am here oh of course she answered in her reckless way 
God is with us everywhere, watching and judging us. But he suffers human sacrifices even in our day. It may be in the scheme of providence that you should be eaten or scalped or tomahawked or burnt alive by savages. Be sure that if it is, the thing will happen. Oh, that's your horrible Calvinistic doctrine, almost as bad as a Turk's. But if you do not leave England, you cannot fall into the hands of those dreadful savages. <laughs> and perhaps remain at home to be killed in a railway accident or die of smallpox. I hardly think the savages would be worse. And if I felt I'd done any good among them, there would be a kind of glory in my death, which might take the sting out of its physical pain. The path of glory leads but to the grave, quoted Elizabeth gloomily. Oh, don't go, Mr. Ford. There are heathens enough to convert in England. But I feel that my vocation calls me yonder. It's a mere fancy. You were a soldier the other day, and cannot forget the old longing for foreign service. Believe me, no. I have considered this business with more deliberation than is usual to me, and I am quite convinced that my duty lies in that direction. A delusion! You would be greater and more useful in England. Your countryman Edward Irving had once that fancy, I remember. He had his ideal picture of a missionary's life, and seriously thought of trying to realise it. Better for himself, perhaps, if he had achieved that early aim, than to be a world's wonder for a few brief years, and die the dupe of a disordered brain. Don't go, Mr. Ford, clasping her hands and looking up at him so piteously with her lovely eyes, so different from the seraphic gaze of poor Gertrude's faded orbs. I wish to heaven I were eloquent, and knew how to plead and argue, as some people do. You are only too eloquent. Your words go to my heart. For God's sake, say no more. Oh, yes, yes, I will say much more. If I can touch you, if my words can penetrate your obstinate heart, you shall not go. I'm pleading for Hawley, and all the people who love you, who have drawn their very faith and hope from you, as if your soul were a fountain of righteousness. I have a presentiment that if you go to those savage islands, it will be to perish, to lose your life for a vain dream. Stay here and teach us to be good. We were half of us pagans till you came to us. They had walked on toward the gate while they were talking. They stood now close beside it, Elizabeth with one bare hand clasping the topmost bar, as if she meant to hinder the curate's exit till she had extorted the recantation of his vow. There was a little pause after her last speech. Malcolm Ford stood looking downward, thinking of what she had said, thinking of it with a passionate delight which was new and strange to his soul, a rapture which had been no element in his love of Alice Fraser. Suddenly he took the hand that hung loosely by Elizabeth's side. If I were weak enough, mad enough to prefer my own happiness to the call of duty, I should stay here, he said. You ought to know that. I know nothing, except you've been very hard and cruel to me always, in spite of all my feeble endeavours to please you, answered the girl, with a faint touch of the pettishness common to the undisciplined beauty. Your endeavours to please me, he repeated. Could I think you valued my opinion? 
if i had imagined that if i could have supposed for one presumptuous moment that you loved me if you could have supposed she cried impatiently you must have known that i loved you that i have hated myself for loving you and that i hated you for not loving me no swift answer came from his lips but she was clasped in his arms held close against his heart his passionate heart which had never beaten thus until this moment my darling my darling he said at last in the lowest fondest tones that ever stole from a lover's lips i never knew what passionate love meant till i knew you not when you loved alice fraser she asked doubtfully not even for my sweet alice i loved her because she was as good as she was beautiful because to love her seemed the nearest way to heaven i love you even when you seem to lead me away from heaven because i'm so wicked she said with a shade of bitterness no darling only because you are not utterly perfect because to love you is to be too fond of this sweet world to be less eager for heaven oh my dearest what a slave you can make of me but beware of this passionate love which you have kindled in a heart that tried so hard to shut you out it is jealous and exacting tyrannic perilous perilous for you and for me it is of the earth and earthy i love you too much for the sake of your beauty too much for the magic of those lovely eyes that seem sweeter to me than summer starlight and if something were to happen to me that would spoil my good looks for ever you'd leave off loving me i suppose she said oh no dearest you would still be elizabeth there's a nameless indefinable charm which would be left even if your beauty had perished then you do not love me for the sake of my beauty she asked persistently as if she were bent on plucking out the heart of his mystery well, not now perhaps but i fear it was that which won me i never meant to love you remember elizabeth no battle was ever harder fought than mine against my own heart and you nor ever a battle lost more ignominiously he added with a faint sigh thank heaven it is lost she said not for my sake i will not claim so unwilling a victim but for your own you will not go to the antipodes to be eaten by savages not if you offer me the supremest earthly happiness at home i will try to do some good in my generation and yet be happy i will forget that i ever had any higher aspiration than to tread the beaten tracks i will try to be useful in my small way at home this half regretfully even with her bright head resting on his shoulder and her lovely eyes looking up at him with an almost worshipping fondness and you will help me to lead a good life will you not elizabeth he asked earnestly i will be your slave she said with a strange blending of scorn and pride scorn of herself intensest pride in him i'll be your dog to fetch and carry the veriest drudge in your parish work if you like i can fancy our life in the dreariest parsonage that ever was built a wild waste of marsh and fen round about us a bleak straggling street of hovels for our town not a decent habitation within ten miles of us only the poor with their perpetual wants and ailments and afflictions i can fancy all this 
and yet my life will be spent in paradise with you sweet fooling in which lovers delight doubly sweet to malcolm ford to whom it was so new my dearest and best he said smiling at her enthusiasm i will forgive you the marshes and fens that is to say we will not go out of our way to find them but we will go wherever we are most wanted to a nice manufacturing town for instance where there'll be a perpetual odour of soap boiling and size making and soot blowing in at all our windows oh, perhaps to such a town darling but i would find you a nest beyond the odours of soap boiling or if you have set your heart on a mission to the dog rib indians or the maoris or the japanese i will go with you why should i have less courage than that noble creature lady baker indeed on reflection i think i should rather like such an adventurous existence if one could go about in a yacht now and convert the heathen it would be really nice i will not risk a life so precious to me no dearest we will be content with a narrower sphere after all perhaps a clergyman who has a wife may be of much more use than a bachelor in an english parish she can be a valuable ally if she chooses almost a second self i will choose to be anything that you order me to be she answered confidently oh, but oh my darling are you really in earnest he asked in his gravest tone scrutinising the upturned face with a serious searching gaze for pity's sake elizabeth do not fool me you have told me that you are fitful and inconstant if if this love which fills my soul with such a fond delight which changes the whole scheme of my existence in a moment if on your part it's only a brief fancy born perhaps of the very idleness and emptiness of your life let us forget every word we've said you can trust me darling i shall not think less of you for being self-deluded consider in time whether it's possible for you to change whether the kind of life which you speak of so lightly would not really seem dismal and unendurable to you when you found yourself pledged to go on living it to the end of your days whether there is not in your heart some hankering for worldly pleasures and worldly triumphs a longing which might grow into a regret when you had lost all hope of them for ever to marry me is to accept a life that must be lived chiefly for others my wife must be a lay sister of charity have i not told you that i'll be your slave she answered and then withdrawing herself suddenly from his arms oh i begin to understand she said with a deeply wounded air it is i who have been offering myself to you not you to me and you are trying to find a polite mode of rejection why are you not more candid why not humiliate me at once by saying really miss luttrell your readiness to sacrifice yourself is most obliging only i do not happen to want you elizabeth you know that i love you with all my heart and mind do you no i cannot believe it i have wished it too much no one ever obtained anything so ardently wished for it's not in nature that i should be so happy if there is any happiness in being assured of my love drink the draught freely it is and has been yours almost since the beginning of our acquaintance 
there's more than happiness there's intoxication she answered in her fervent unmeasured fashion not because you're handsome she went on with an arch smile for in that respect i am superior to you it was not your face that won me i love you because you seem to me so much above all other men because you have dominion over me in fact i did not think it could be so sweet to have a master oh, say rather a guide and counsellor dearest there shall be no question of dominion between us i want your life to be as happy as mine will be in the possession of your love oh, but i insist upon your being my master she answered impetuously i am not a creature to be guided or counselled oh see how little influence papa has ever exercised over me with his mild bewailings and lamentings or gertrude with her everlasting sermonising believe me i must be commanded by a being stronger than myself even my love for you is slavish see how little value i could have set upon my dignity as a woman when i came out here to-night to make my supplication to you but i did not mean to betray myself i only meant to plead for the people of hawley you will not think me too contemptible will you malcolm the name was half whispered it was the first time she had ever pronounced it contemptible a lingering kiss upon the broad white brow made the rest of his answer how long this kind of talk might have lasted is an open question but at this moment elizabeth's quick ear caught the sound of a footstep on the high road it is papa perhaps she said nervously please go oh, if you wish it darling but i may tell him everything to-morrow may i not to-morrow oh, that is so very sudden there can be no reason for delay dearest of course our marriage is an event in the future i am not going to hasten that unduly though as far as worldly matters go i am in a position to marry to-morrow but there should be no delay in letting your father know of our engagement i suppose not our engagement how strange that sounds do you really mean it or will you write me a little note to-morrow morning recalling your ill-advised expressions of to-night oh, such a note is more likely to come from you than from me but one word darling how about this visit to mrs chevenix it can be put off can it not now oh i hardly think so auntie has made all preparations for me well they cannot involve much oh she would be so disappointed and papa so angry and there are my expectations you know one cannot fly in the face of fortune my wife must be independent of expectations dear and london gaieties are not the best preparation for life in a parsonage among the fens do you think not i shall find out how hollow and empty such pleasures are and learn to despise them that is according to circumstances but as a matter of personal feeling i would rather you did not go i only wish it were possible to slip out of the engagement oh, but i don't think it is aunt chevenix is so easily offended offend her then dear for once in the way elizabeth shook her head hopelessly after the money that had been spent upon her dresses it would seem something worse than folly not to wear them they might have served for her trousseau perhaps 
but she doubted if so much flouncing and trimming on the garments of a country clergyman's wife would have satisfied Malcolm Ford's sense of the fitness of things. There was a white tulle ball-dress dotted about with tea-roses, a masterpiece of Miss March's, which she thought of with a tender regretfulness. Oh, the dresses ought really to be worn, and what a pity to offend Aunt Chevenix for nothing. Very well, said Mr. Ford. I see my tyranny is not to begin yet a while. If you must go, dear, you must. But it seems rather hard that our betrothal should be inaugurated by a separation. It will only be for a few weeks, and I'm not going till the end of the month. The footstep had approached and had passed the vicarage gate. It was not the step of Mr. Luttrell, but of some bulky farmer walking briskly toward his homestead. "'Good night, dearest,' said Malcolm Ford, suddenly awakened to the recollection that it was a cold March night, and that Elizabeth was beginning to shiver. "'How inconsiderate of me to keep you standing in the open air so long. Shall I take you back to the hall door?' "'Oh, no. My sisters might see us and wonder. I will run round by the orchard and go in the back way.' "'Very well, dear. They shall have no ground for wonderment after to-morrow. Good night.' End of chapter 12